Father, you were so good to us. You have provided for us the way of salvation when we couldn't find that way on our own. You have given to us your word, which is a guidebook, an owner's manual. You own us. You created us. And Father, we give glory back to you for the wonderful things you have done and for the fact that we have hope. We are not in despair. We are not worried beyond help with the things that are going to transpire this next week. We ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we live our lives the way that you would want us to, that we do our best to hold up the morality, the transcendent morality that you have given to us. We pray that you would give us boldness in speaking the truth in the face of adversity, in the face of persecution. And we'd ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see if there's any trouble on the horizon, how we should best handle it, if we should intervene, if she would refrain, Lord, those, those things of doing right and wrong. We pray that you would let us know, speak to us by your Holy Spirit, as well with your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what did we learn last time? We learned that these current bodies that we dwell in will be destroyed. And those of us who believe, we long to be clothed with the new body because the current conditions that we are in, in these bodies, we have a tendency to groan, some more than others, some days more than others. God has made us for this purpose to be clothed with our new heavenly bodies, and we're looking forward to that. And as a guarantee of this, this hope that lies before us, he has placed his Holy Spirit within us. And so God lives in us And he guides us, and we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, which is in us by being disobedient, but we want to pay attention to him. We want to commune with him. And it's not like we have some type of psychological condition where we're talking back and forth with with our uh, own thoughts. It's where God actually guides us. If we pay attention and we know his word, he he promises to do this for the rest of our lives here on earth and even beyond. Now, because of all these things, the Holy Spirit dwelling within, the hope of a new body, the anticipation of being in the presence of God, we seek to please him in every way, whether we are in these bodies or even in the future when we get to heaven. We seek to please him because of what he has promised us. Now, the things we do for the Lord and the motivations behind them will all be judged by God, by Jesus Christ specifically. He will judge us for not only the acts that we do, but for the motivation for the acts that we do. And so you want to keep that in mind as we live the rest of our lives. Everything in the past is gone. We can't change that. But certainly from this day forward, we want to make sure that we are living in such a way where God looks at our motives and our actions, and he's going to judge and reward us for that, or we're going to suffer loss of reward. Wouldn't we all love it if we get to heaven and God says to each one of us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's in Luke chapter 19, verse 17. And I want to explain this first. I'm going to talk about being judged by Jesus Christ because we are going to be judged by him. There first is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is concomitant or equal or at the same time as the bema seat judgment. First resurrection, beam a seat judgment. Then there's the second part. There is the second death and the great white throne judgment. So, second death, great white throne judgment, beam a seat, first resurrection. Those are in two categories. We are in 
this category. It's my right hand. For you, it would be your left hand. This is what we want to focus on first, and then we're going to focus on the second death and the great white throne judgment. So we, as believers, will all give an account of ourselves to God. How this is going to happen exactly, I don't know. But this is one of the major questions that falls into one of the four categories that all questions fall into that we would have about our existence. Those four areas, I have mentioned these before, are origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. This has to do with destiny. What happens to us after we die? What is it going to be like? What are we going to face? Are we going to be alive? Are we not going to be alive? Are we going to exist forever? Are we not going to exist forever? These are the four categories, and this one is destiny. How are we going to be judged? Well, I want to tell you, we are going to be judged. Everyone who has ever been born, who has ever existed, will exist forever. There is not a time, there is not a doctrine called the doctrine of total annihilation, where people will cease to exist. It's like falling asleep and they won't dream and they'll not have consciousness at all. That is not a doctrine that is in the scriptures. The doctrine in the scriptures is eternal life and eternal punishment or eternal life and eternal contempt. Matthew 25, 46 and Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. So those are the two choices that we get. Now, you know, you might um, pray for this young man, James, an atheist. He came to the youth group and uh, he had some questions and he still has some questions. And I'm praying he comes back this next week and we can answer these questions for him. And I told him the same thing. We're going to exist forever and one's a place in heaven and one place is in hell. And so this, uh, we want to deal with this because it affects us directly. Romans chapter 14 verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we're going to appear before Jesus Christ and he's going to look at us. And he'll probably say something like, Give an account of yourself. You're not going to be speechless. You're going to say something. What are you going to say? Well, I followed you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength as often as I could, which was not very much. Is that what you're going to say? Or are you going to say, you know, I forsook everything in this life in order to follow you? Is that what you're going to say? Now, it's probably somewhere in the middle right there, at least for most of us. But that's what's going to happen. Each one of us is going to stand before him. Now, our deeds will be judged. The things that you have done for God. I'm not talking about the things you've done for yourself. I'm talking about the things you have done for God. Now, if all that there is is things that you've done for yourself, you're going to give an account of that. But we are certainly going to talk about the things we have done specifically for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we've already covered this when we went through 1 Corinthians, but it talks about the wood, hand, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. By uh, Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us here, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If a man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." 
And so what you do for God, if you're doing it for the proper motives and you actually do things for God, we will be rewarded. Collectively, we'll be rewarded, each one of us individually. And, and that's the purpose of God. Now, if we do something out of impure motives, like, for instance, if you're using flattery to make your way inside of a church to get to the position you want to be, he's going to judge that motive. Oh, your teaching was just so wonderful and you, you endear yourself to somebody. Not that you can't tell me my teaching is wonderful. You know, we all know what it is, but no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You understand what I'm saying. You pat somebody on the back. Oh, good job. You're so wonderful. And you just kind of puff them up and build them up. And you're doing that to get something that you want. And God said, God, your motives weren't quite right. You're not going to get the reward because your motives weren't right. Now, if you're doing it specifically to help somebody else and to serve God, he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. If you get nothing for yourself out of it, except for the pleasure of knowing that you've done the work for Christ and for him alone, then that's good. So our deeds will be judged. Now, lest you fall into despair saying, you know, I don't have much that I have done. Let's take some people from Scripture and the rewards that they might get. Let's take Noah, for instance. He worked for the Lord. Now, how much of a reward do you think Noah will receive for preaching to the people to repent? How many converts did he have? His family. How long did he preach for? A hundred years. That's not too good of a track record. So he's, he's not going to get that crown because he saves people. He brings them into the kingdom. Not much there. Just kind of open the wallet, moths fly out type of thing. That's not going to be the reward. Now, he was faithful to preach the word, and he'll be rewarded for that. But how much of a reward do you think Noah will receive for being faithful to follow the word of the Lord and to build the ark in the face of opposition? Oh, size of the ark, treasure. I mean, he, he's going to have a lot of treasure because of that. Well, what about Abraham? How much of a reward do you think Abraham will receive for trusting God, even sacrificing his own son, wanting to do so? And God stopped him, and he was called faithful. That's who Abraham was. Probably receive a huge amount because we are blessed because of what he has done. And his reward is continuing to be built because time hasn't ended yet. But how much of a reward do you think Abraham will receive for always telling the truth? He didn't tell the truth. He told Pharaoh and Abimelech that his wife Sarah was his sister. It was a half-truth. He was, uh, that was his half-sister whom he married. So he wasn't very good at telling the truth, was he? Now, I'm sure he probably did it some other times as well. It appears he was in the habit at least twice in Scripture. Well, what about Moses? How much of a reward do you think Moses will receive for being a murderer? He was a murderer. He's not going to receive any reward for that. But how much of a reward do you think Moses will receive for leading the people of Israel? Oh, it's going to be immeasurable. You, you see how it, it kind of goes, this loss of reward and reward? What about King David? How much of a reward do you think King David will receive for being a man after God's own heart? Uh, he led the nation of Israel. What a great king he was. But how much of a reward do you think King David will receive for being a murderer and an adulterer? He won't receive any reward for that. And you see, I, I, I believe God gave us these examples here so that we would not worry or fret 
just follow the Lord and what he'd have us do. And we're going to make mistakes along the way. And everybody is a sinner. And we're all under this cloud of judgment until we receive Christ. And we'll be judged accordingly and we'll be judged fairly. And when we walk away, we'll end up saying, he was fair. He was just. He didn't give me anything I didn't deserve. And he rewarded me for what he, he called me to do, what work he called me to do. Well, how about the final one, the Apostle Paul? How much reward do you think the Apostle Paul will receive for being faithful unto death and proclaiming the gospel? He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. It's because of him that we actually exist. God used him. We actually exist as a church. It was because of him. How much reward do you think the Apostle Paul will receive for being able to hold his tongue? Not much. Let me give you a little account. It says, uh, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. What do you think scripture says? First Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but with blessing. Now that so Apostle Peter wrote that, but the Apostle Paul, You whitewashed wall! And he wasn't supposed to speak evil of the leader of the people. Now if you, you can read that one of two ways when he did this, when he called the high priest a whitewashed wall. You can say, well, he didn't really know it was the high priest. Maybe he was incognito. Maybe he had his head covered back in the shadows, that type of thing. Could have been. Or he knew exactly who it was, and he wanted to insult him. Paul, I could see him using sarcasm. God does in the scriptures, and Paul used it over and over. And we'll get to it. You super apostles, that's sarcasm to the core when he uses that in Second Corinthians. And so... Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so Paul was violating this particular scripture. He was supposed to bless and not curse uh, the high priest who was there. So Our deeds will be judged. Everything that we've ever done for the Lord, I'm sure there's probably a book. Now, this is probably metaphorically speaking, but something will be there to give us all the accounts of our lives, everything that we've done. Then the motives will be judged. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Those people were judging Paul in the church. He says, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So he knows what we're thinking on the inside. He knows the deepest thoughts that not even your spouse or your children might know. He knows what's going on on the inside. Now, it can leak out every once in a while, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if there's evil in there, if there's envy, if there's jealousy, if there's strife, it will eventually come out. 
We cannot hide that. We cannot keep it from gushing out. But the Lord will judge truly what is in our hearts. Now, when will we be judged as believers? When does this take place? Now, some people believe in this reaping and sowing, which it does happen. Like if you take crystal meth over and over and over, you're going to reap that and you're going to look like a walking skeleton with sores all over your face and the behaviors are just going to be out of control. That's a reaping and sowing, which is here. But being judged by God specifically, when is that going to happen? Well, this is where the Bema Seat and the Great White Throne Judgment come into play. Now, uh, let me get the scripture. It's verse 10. I want to read it again out of Second Corinthians chapter 5. It says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done in the body, whether good or or bad. Now, for those who are believers, it is our time to be judged at the Bema Seat. Now, this is going to take place after the rapture and before the second coming or millennial reign of Christ. It's going to take place in that time frame. Now, for those on earth, that is seven and a half years. When we're in heaven, time is different in heaven. How long might it be in heaven? I have no idea. Could it be seven and a half years in heaven, the same time on earth? Yes. Could it be a million years? Yes, it could. We don't know because God dwells outside of time. Time is a physical property in this universe. We will not be in this universe when we are in heaven. But that's when the Bema Seat of Christ is going to take place. Now, that Bema Seat coincides with the first resurrection. Now, the first resurrection is in three parts, and I'll get to that in a moment. But this word Bema Seat, or it's actually pronounced Bema, uh, it is used a few times in Scripture. It was used in Acts chapter 18, verse 16. And in, it, this is where Galio was proconsul of Achaia, or Achaia, however you pronounce it, decided not to have the Apostle Paul punished for disseminating the gospel. He was brought before a secular judge. And his judge, his court, it was called the Bema seat. Also, when Paul was in court before Caesar, Acts chapter 25, verse 10, it, it talks about Caesar's court. It's also the Bema seat. And then we will all appear before the Bema seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. This is a place where we get rewarded or loss of reward. Now, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. So at this seat, we either are rewarded or we suffer loss of reward. When will we be judged? This judgment of believers, as I said, takes place between the rapture and the millennial reign of Christ. Now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, and this is the three parts to the first resurrection. The first resurrection began with Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. I should do it for this side. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. First one. The next group are the dead in Christ and those who remain. So if we are not raptured today or next year or until after we die, we are in that category of the dead in Christ. We will make it before those who remain because we'll have at least six feet more to go 
because we're under the ground. Then those people who are above the ground, they will go next. So that's the second part. So it's Christ. It's the believers in Christ, part of the church. And then at the end, Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, talks about those who have been beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ. They will be resurrected to rule and reign with Christ a thousand years. So it's three parts to the first resurrection. All three of those will be judged at the Bama Seat of Christ. Now, I do have a question in my own mind that I haven't been able to solve. We know that in Ezekiel chapter 37, it's the valley of bones. Them bones, them bones, them crazy bones. You know, and, and you know the song, right? If you don't know the song, look it up. Those bones, those bones. And those bones come together, the nation of Israel being resurrected. Being not just resuscitated, but resurrected. They're going to be given new bodies. When do they get their reward? Well, it's going to be sometime after Christ returns to earth, sets up his kingdom, raises from the dead King David and all the righteous Jews. They will inhabit Jerusalem. And it's going to be repopulated by the Jews who are in Jerusalem. Now, how that works exactly, I don't know. Are the resurrected Jews, they, they have a body like ours, and is it the Jews that survive the tribulation that repopulate the nation of Israel? Not quite sure, but when do those resurrected Jews get their reward? It's going to have to be right before he sits on his throne and the people are resurrected. It's going to be somewhere at that point. But that's not part of the Bama Seat of Christ. Will it be like a Bama Seat? Yes, I think it will be. But it's going to be outside of the first resurrection. Now let's go on with this. The first resurrection and the second resurrection or the second death is what it's called. This brings us to the great white throne judgment. And this is in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 11. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there is no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the meaning of this is the believers get rewarded or suffer loss of reward at the Bama seat, which is over here. Everyone else that has ever existed from the time of Adam and Eve all the way up till the time that Jesus comes back at the end, all the way through the, the tribulation period, all the way through the millennium, all the people that have ever existed up until the time the earth is destroyed, Second Peter chapter 3, with a fervent heat. It's going to be done away with. Then the great white throne appears. Where are we going to be exactly? I don't know. It's heaven, wherever God is. Heaven is there. But it's going to be pretty weird. I think we'll just accept it the way it is, but it's going to be pretty weird. So this great white throne is there. Angels come swooping down. They open up all these books that are there. Everybody is resurrected. There's going to be a throng of people which you will not be able to count that are going to be out there. And each one of them is going to be judged based on what they had done. Now, there are, I believe, some people in that group. It's mostly the unsaved, but there are going to be some people in that group that grew up or lived during the millennial reign of Christ were righteous and they died. They will not go to hell or the lake of fire. They will be judged based on what they did with Christ and the books are going to be open which will have recorded that. Now it does say this in Isaiah chapter 65 verse 20 
through 25. It says, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. So there's going to be people, and this is talking about the millennial reign of Christ, people that exist that will die. They'll be a few hundred years old, and they're righteous, and so they will go to heaven. But the majority of people that have been resurrected they're going to go to hell into the lake of fire. I believe it is at that time that God's going to wipe away our tears because we are going to be grieving for the billions of people who decided not to go to heaven. But we have already passed from that death, that judgment of death, unto life because we accepted Christ. But the world doesn't want to. Now with this boy James who is in the youth group, he is going to make a decision. He, he seemed to soften a little bit at the end, but you know how the enemy comes along and starts talking in your mind or making suggestions by other people. I don't think that he has access to the brain here, to your mind. But he'll bring other people like, how can you believe that? He told me that his mother was a complete atheist and his father was a believer. And so he's got this tension. And he started out as an atheist. Right now I think he's an agnostic. He's right in between. But he is going to make a decision. Is he following Christ or is he going to follow the way of the world? So with the Bema Seat, the salvation of the individual is not an issue. It is giving out of reward or losing some reward. And with the great white throne judgment, salvation is the main issue. If you're not saved, you're cast into the lake of fire. So... Our focus from this day forward is not doing works so that we might get to heaven, but it is to be performing tasks for the Savior so that we might be rewarded when we see him before the judgment seat or the beam seat of Christ. That's to be our focus. Our motivation, even in this, is not to be how much can I store up in heaven. Now, we all like to save money, right? How much can I get? Penny pinchers. I know people who are so penny pincher wise and they have money. They do. It's, but it rules their lives uh, doing that. And we're not supposed to be concerned how many good deeds can I get in order to get a big pile in heaven bigger than anyone else's. That's not supposed to be our motivation. Our motivation rather is to be prompted by our faith in Jesus and our love for God. The reward comes as a result of that. It happens just as a sidebar to it if we're following Christ. The reward will take care of itself if we follow Christ. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 talk about this. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, the motivation is not how much can I get. The motivation is prompted by love and also produced because of the faith that we possess. Knowing that we will appear before, the, before Christ to be judged by him should also have a sobering effect on our actions as well as constantly checking on our motivations. So why do we do what we do? It is for the sake of Christ and it is not for ourselves that we pursue him. It's something for us to think about. Now, what we're going to do at this time, we're going to 
put down the inner lights uh, here in the sanctuary, and we're going to receive communion. And once we do this, Kim's going to come up, and she's going to start playing the guitar. Now, once she plays the guitar, what I would like you guys to do is from the first rows going back one at a time, just come up. The, the first couple of rows can come in this way. Get the communion and circle back around on the outside and you'll be able to take your seat once again. And remember to hold on to these so that we can all participate in uh, taking it together. And I will give a little bit more explanation as to the communion and why we're doing it uh, once the song has finished and once you guys have picked up your cup. So if you would all stand at this time and Kim will begin playing. 